how do we face the challenges? Often we look at multilingualism in education from that perspective. It makes teaching and learning difficult. How do we tackle the problems that come along with it? But what if we started looking at multilingualism as an opportunity for learning? as the key to unlock potential for all learners. In this podcast, three experts rise to the challenge. What about embracing multilingualism, especially in a diverse country like South Africa? Hello, everyone. Hi. Hi. Hi, and hi to our audience as well. We have people listening to the very first podcast that VVOB is making. We are right now in KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. And I have around my table three experts in multilingualism. <laughs> Fatima, you're already looking at me. Uh, you're already frowning when I say that, but I, I consider you uh, an expert. Thank you. So welcome Fatima Osman. You're a VVOB staff member. Also welcome uh, Wash Mangal Parsat. You are an English coordinator for the KwaZulu-Natal province. Yes, thank you very much for being here, especially you, because we are at our own office, but you came to us in your busy schedule. Thank you. And also thank you, Hannah Huisman. For being here. Thank you. So I think we're all four of us healthy nervous <laughs> because it's our first podcast. Um, we're making this because VVOB organizes the Inspired Learning Week. We do that every year. So we invite experts from the Global South to share their expertise with Belgian teacher trainers. And this happens every year around a different theme. And this year, the theme is multilingualism, which is what we are going to talk about. Yeah, so if you listen to this podcast and you are interested in participating, you can register for free online. We will leave the link in the description of this podcast. Can the three of you please start by introducing yourself? Maybe your name and what links you to multilingualism. Fatima, can you start, please? Yes, sure, thank you. Okay, so I'm Fatima Osman, and I'm a program coordinator in the KZN office of BBOB South Africa. <clears throat> I think if I look at the key program, which is LT for Diversity, um, that's Leading and Teaching for Diversity. Uh, it links directly to multilingualism because it's a, it is about reading and teaching um, for all learners. And that includes learners who come with different languages. I remember we've had uh, a curriculum differentiation workshop there. Uh, you and Hannah will remember that very well. They were key in that. Um, yeah, there's a great focus on how do you accommodate um, all learners, which includes um, yeah, learners of different languages. And I think the other thing is about um, 
language being seen as a barrier to education. And um, for me, that's, that's key. And we need to explore how we, in our program, can ensure that we overcome that barrier. Um, so how do, how do leaders support the inclusivity of all learners? And how do teachers then, in their teaching, yeah, what, what's their methodology and strategies to promote teaching for all? Thank you, Fatima, and thank you also for, I think, already giving a bit of VVOB vibes because inclusivity and education for all learners is something, I mean, that's the core of what we try to do, I think. Rosh. You are one of the experts. You will be doing a presentation during the learning week. Okay, so my name is Rosh Mangupasad. I'm a provincial English coordinator in the province of KZN. And um, KZN is one of the most diverse um, learner populations that one could see in terms of uh, different race groups, and the school setups with demographics and so on, as well as migration of learners from rural areas into urban areas. And uh, one of my passions is to, uh, to assist teachers to come up with strategies which will include all kinds of learners and learning styles in the classroom, uh, as Fatima mentioned earlier on. I think, um, what we tend to ignore sometimes is that learners who come from different backgrounds, come from different cultures and have different languages that they speak in their homes. And when they migrate from the uh, rural areas and come into urban areas, they are kind of assimilated into the urban school culture. Uh, instead of uh, accommodation, by the school authorities, actually uh, what happens is they are immersed in the system of the school and um, very often their needs tend to get neglected. Unless there is good teacher training and teachers are well capacitated with their teaching methodologies, they understand why they should be using those uh, methodologies um, and the provision of uh, relevant material, teaching material, because teachers generally do not have uh, lots of time to start from scratch planning their own teaching materials to accommodate learners with different needs. And language definitely is one of the barriers to uh, you know, effective learning. And with regards to multilingualism and how it relates to the classroom and our country situation, you know, from our constitution, uh, running down to the Bill of Rights and the various legislations and policies that are uh, that are existing within the education sector, multilingualism uh, is embedded in everything that is spoken about in terms of uh, inclusivity, in terms of catering for those learners. And uh, my interest is how can we support teachers to teach better in classrooms so that children who come to classes with different languages are able to participate effectively in the teaching and learning process and they actually uh, benefit from the teaching that 
um, is happening in the classroom instead of being uh, sort of sidelined or looked at as the other. So I'm interested in those teaching st strategies, but especially with regards to teaching reading, because reading is a big problem in our country. And um, it has been highlighted that children from all uh, language backgrounds are struggling, but especially children from, with, with um, first additional backgrounds when they are learning English. Yeah, because that is also what you are going to focus your presentation on during the yeah. learning week, reading for meaning. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, I got a little sneak peek uh, in your PowerPoint, so I already know this. We're going to go into that a little later, but uh, Hannah, you haven't introduced yourself yet. So can you also say what your, what your link is with multilingualism, please? Yeah, so my name is Hannah and I'm an education advisor with VVOB um, in South Africa. Uh, but I'm originally from Belgium and before that I've worked for VVOB in Zambia and Zimbabwe. And in fact, in all of those contexts, there, there are issues, be it challenges or good practices related to multilingualism in education. and those issues of multilingualism and language and acquiring language are really hugely important when it comes to equity. And so what we're seeing very often is that children who start off with lower language skills or a different language from the language that is used in the education system from the beginning, they are very much at a disadvantage. But what I've also noticed is when teachers can get to the level where they see multilingualism as something to embrace and an opportunity for learning, they seem to have found a key to unlock potential for all children. As long as it's seen as, as, a, as a problem or as a challenge, it, it can be a real, issues for, a, a real issue or a real challenge for teachers uh, to overcome that. So I'm hoping that the Learning Week, um, the Inspired Learning Week that all three of us will be going to, that indeed we can share some uh, good experiences or practices or, or plans that we have in South Africa, but we're obviously also uh, very keen to learn with and from others that will be there. Thank you so much. And while the three of you have been introducing yourselves, mm -hmm. uh, you have been nodding, and Fatima, your nod was the hardest when Hannah started talking about multilingualism as uh, a good thing as well. Can you elaborate on that? Why? Yeah, I think I said it also in my own introduction that very often multilingualism is seen as a challenge and um, rather than a resource. And uh, we need to shift from that thinking that it is a challenge um, and it, it can actually be used to unlock potential. I think it's also, um, and I think Hannah knows a bit of this, when I went to school, I couldn't speak any English. So it was about my own experiences and um, you know how important it is to overcome that barrier um, yeah, very early so that it can unlock any learning potential. What was your mother tongue then? 
the first thing I don't call it a mother tongue. I think uh, there's a lot of gender associated with that. Oh, I'm so sorry. So I call it a heritage language or a, a home language. So I spoke Urdu, which is my heritage language. And I also spoke Isizulu, which was the language in the community in which I lived. So I lived in a farming community. So those were the two languages that I was exposed to until I got to school and had to learn English. Mm -hmm. And now English uh, as well. So that's the three languages you now speak. No, it's unfortunately not. I speak English. I speak my heritage language. I speak Afrikaans and no more Zulu as fluently as I could. So it's it's about this whole thing about adding a language and how you also give up a language when you take on a new language. And that's also a fear in a classroom. Uh, you know, you spoke about the whole immersion. So you get immersed into an environment where it's only English, so much so that you take on the English and you forget the rest. So I actually speak now English better than the two languages that I spoke as a child, and that's a sadness. Mm -hmm. It's uh, interesting what Fatima is saying. Um, my grandparents and my parents used to speak the vernacular, that is Hindi. Okay. And um, when I reflect on my upbringing, nobody in my home spoke to me in the vernacular. I was only spoken to in English. And I think what happened in those days is a decision was taken by the community members that the young had to learn the English for upward mobility, for education, for career prospects. And I think if I can draw links with what is happening right now amongst, let me say, the African community, uh, there are many people in, in the African community who want their children to be educated in English. And I can link that then to the migration from rural areas into urban areas. Children are crisscrossing suburbs because they want um, placements in schools mm -hmm. where English is offered as a home language. And uh, in, interestingly enough, to draw the parallel, uh, parents from all uh, social backgrounds now want their children to become fluent in English because they see it exactly as my grandparents did. It's the language of uh, commerce, it's the language of job opportunities, and they also look at people within their own communities who speak English very fluently, and they want to be as fluent as well because it is something that they are aspiring to. And interestingly enough, I grew up in a family that was full of educators. My grandfather was a, a, a school principal. My dad and his two brothers were school teachers. And you would think that they may have thought differently, let, let us retain the vernacular. You know, it, it's an important part of our culture and so on. But that wasn't the case. Can I just add something? You know, as I listen to Roche speak, I also grew up in a, in a family of educators. But the thinking was so different. Um, it was English is not a measure of intelligence. And therefore, it was a promotion of, of the two languages. 
but how quickly that gets overtaken when we emerge to this full environment where English is seen almost as a measure of intelligence, not just as a measure of learning and communication and so forth. Yeah, so how do we make that shift towards more respect for home languages? Any ideas? Well, maybe there I think it's maybe important to mention, because I don't think we've done that yet, but the policy of the South African government that ensures that, mm -hmm. or aims to ensure that children, at least in the foundation phase, so in the first years of uh, pre-primary and primary, can go to school, and the language that is used at the school is a heritage oh. language. Of course, that comes with complications, especially when children are migrating from one area to another. So there's a lot of schools also where you'll find children from different language backgrounds. But at least that policy is there. And that the, the aim of that policy is, I think, in the first place, to ensure that children can grasp con concepts and develop conceptual understanding without first still needing to mm -hmm understand the language that is foreign to them. So there, there are, there, there, there's that background of, I guess, also recognizing the value of those heritage languages and sort of going a bit against maybe what, what some of the parents are, 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 you know, sort of aspiring to the government is trying to say and give a different message, like all South African languages are valuable. So I think that's, that's an important thing for the, the South African context, I think. Mm -hmm. um, that at least at that policy level, there is recognition of the value in different languages. Can I just add on some developments uh, with regards to policy? So uh, one of the developments is um, the education department is looking at extending that mother tongue instruction up to intermediate phase, that is grade six. And English will be taught parallel to that as the language of learning and teaching, but the child's home language will be retained until they are in grade six. I think that is something new that is looked at in light of what we are talking about in terms of uh, retaining our heritage languages, except that we call it indigenous languages. and. Um, in addition to that, the government has already implemented a policy called incremental introduction of African languages, mm -hmm. where they are promoting all South African citizens to at least have a conversational knowledge of that African uh, language. And uh, one of the reasons why they are promoting it uh, quite vigorously is for social cohesion, because we live in communities that are mixed. We interact with people that speak different languages. And if you can talk to a person in their language, like our late uh, President Nelson Mandela said, it goes to his heart. Mm. So I think that is an important uh, principle behind the introduction of that policy. Mm. Of course, it is promoting multilingualism. So until grade six, instead of uh, now it is until grade three, right? Yeah, and then it uh, changes at grade four. Correct. Yeah.
But at the same time, there are also certain pilots that are happening in the country, and I think the Fiji uh, State is one of these, where they are immersing learners into English medium class classes right from grade one. It might even be from grade R. So there is that, but I think it is to, to look at um, how it would work. Uh, do they actually then going into grade four is the transition better from grade four from grade three to grade four if they've already been immersed in around here in English. So there there are those other pilots and yeah that are happening as well in the country. But I think um, it is about finding out, I think the country is committed in finding out what works best and, and how best the learners uh, can benefit. In the end, it's about the learners. Mm. Mm -mm. Mm -hmm. And it's very much an issue of equity and ensuring that yeah, populations that were previously disadvantaged, you know, there's a very big gap in the quality of education or educational outcomes, uh, I should say. And, and language is, of course, a very important aspect of that and accommodating all children and I think it is Rush what you were saying before about that immersion into it's it's also an immersion into a different school culture mm -hmm. it's not only about language it's but it's about sort of saying now this child's background and culture is now you know neglected not looked at not found to be valuable and I think that's what through these policies that's what the Department of Education is trying to also bring about that all those different backgrounds are are valued um, in the educational setting, mm -hmm. and such children will then grow up to think that very differently about their backgrounds and where they come from and how they value that. Um, so there's that to it as well. Yeah, it's this issue about language giving you identity. Yeah, and it's about ensuring. That we can we can develop that that we can um, almost protect that identity of all learners. Another important thing that the education department is trying to do is to develop books in the different indigenous languages, mm -hmm. and that will go a long way in promoting the multilingualism because then the resources are available. And uh, I, I like what Hannah is saying in terms of uh, not negating the culture of a learner, because essentially what are you doing if you do not have material that uh, speaks to the child's language and culture? You're negating that child's entire background, mm, yeah. leading to the belief that he or she is not good enough. Mm. And that is when that, that whole issue of identity crisis comes in and, and, and a learner can look at his or her own culture to say, I'm not good enough, if no reference is made to that particular culture or language. So there, there, there is movement in that direction to, to have more literature, for example, because literature, short stories especially, are, are, are very powerful uh, tools in the hands of a teacher um, because a folk tale will speak to 
the language of the child and the child can actually make links between his or her background and maybe a new story that is being read in class. And just by the way, we are our policies are being constantly updated. So one of the newest things that I have come across in our language policy document is that the home language and the first additional language will be taught using the same kind of structures. The four skills at the same level, well, uh, well, in terms of the four skills, you will teach the four skills and at the same time, so that uh, a home language teacher, I'm going to use Isizulu here because Isizulu is prevalent in KZN, um, a home language teacher can then collaborate with the first additional teacher and they can come up with mechanisms. How do they build? How will the first additional teacher build on the knowledge that the child has in the home language and then apply links to learning in a first additional language? I like the idea of the four skills, Roche, because very often when we talk about multilingualism, we confuse multi multilingualism with the ability to speak many languages, not to read and write. And multi multilingualism is deeper than just speaking. It's about being able to read and write as well. And I think that focus on, on the different skills is very important. Can I just maybe ask for the sake of the listeners, what are those four skills? Okay, so those skills are the listening and speaking. Mm -hmm. That would be the oral capacity and competence. It's um, reading and viewing, focused greatly on reading comprehension and literature. Then there's writing and presenting. And writing and presenting is seen as a process, not a once-off mm -hmm. uh, uh, activity. Mm -hmm. And last but not least is language structure and convention which is uh, taught in an integrated way, embedded in the text that is used to teach the language competencies and skills. Well, thank you for explaining and thank you, Hamel, for doing my job. <laughs> so, Rosh, you have made the perfect bridge to the content you are going to talk about in March because you will be talking about reading for meaning. That's correct. Yeah. So that's another priority of South African government. And I think the conversation that has been going on here shows that it is rightly so. Is that Agreed. yes. Yeah. Why? I think the, the research shows that uh, clearly there's a very large percentage of it's it's about seventy eight percent of grade four learners who cannot read um, in any language for meaning, not just uh, English. So yes, I mean, that's a huge case because if you cannot comprehend, then you cannot, you cannot learn. And why did you choose this to focus on? Yes, so, so, so reading uh, has become a key focus area in the education sector, uh, especially for the reason that uh, Fatima has just mentioned. Um, the country is uh, 
not reluctant to participate in international uh, assessments. Uh, actually, they, they eagerly participate because they want to see where do we feature. And I think it's a good thing that the kids did write the test because now we can see what the gaps are. And um, many interventions have been forthcoming. Um, but the intervention that I'm going to speak about is actually a large scale intervention that is focusing on reading for meaning. And um, especially with regards to the higher order thinking skills for comprehension, like uh, evaluations and predictions and so on. But what is also so beautiful about this intervention is it does not focus on reading alone. It focuses on integrating all the four skills that are that I mentioned earlier on. So it's not working in a silo. It works on building the oral capacity with children's vocabulary. Um, and vocabulary uh, is, is uh, built upon. Children learn how to make sentences. And then it focuses on, of course, the reading with understanding where a very structured program has been put in place to address the, the issues that Fatima has mentioned about the lack of uh, reading for understanding. So the intervention program is focusing in detail using um, strategies that are actually recommended for multilingual classes. And uh, I'm very interested to see how is it going to roll out. Is it just a program? That the government has now adopted as a flagship program or after two or three years are we going to see um, the advantages are we going to see a positive outcome because this is what we are looking for we want to see some improvement in our learner performance um, it can't be that south african children cannot read with understanding because then it means all of us who are part of the education sector is failing and we can't let that happen under our watch. So that has become uh, not only the education sector priority, it is our president, Cyril Ramaphosa's um, mandate that reading must be uh, a priority area. In fact, he's one of the patrons of reading in the country. He actually mentions reading for meaning. Yes, his mandate is that every South African child who is 10 years old must be able to read for meaning. You see, I think the pro the, 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 there's something that we need to understand about the reading. Children can read, but it's the, it's, it's the oral capacity. They bark at words. They, they can sound out the words. They can decode the words. But what is the meaning beneath the word or that underpins that sentence, what can we extract from that subtext is what is lacking amongst the learners. I think so much so that even simple questions like the what, where, when, why questions can't be answered. So, you know, if you talk about what you were saying earlier about, what did you say, deeper meaning, reflection, mm -hmm. critical thinking, yes. uh, yeah, that's in higher order, so even the basic yeah, then yeah. we're talking about the situation where, where a learner reads a text and can read it out loud and there's no problem and then afterwards you ask them 
what was the text about that you just read and they cannot answer. So that the words that are learned during an oral lesson do not remain as words learned during the oral lesson and that's where it remains static. It must be able to live in the writing. You must be able to see that the child is applying the knowledge of the word to, to engage in a writing piece. So I have printed something for you that I want to that I want you to take a look at. Rosh, in your presentation, you talk about the nine core components of effective and sustained multilingual education programs. That's correct. Yeah. So I have printed those. I hope you don't mind. Uh, and I want the three of you to just take a look at them. You can take your time and then pick one of them that speaks to you. And then okay. afterwards I will ask you why. Why uh, did you choose that one? <laughs> you can fight for the best one. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Hama, can mm. you start by reading yours out loud, please? Yeah, I guess how do we tackle challenges with multilingualism is the million dollar question, right? So it's, I think many of the cards that were there are, are relevant, but I chose recruitment and training that bring motivated and respected people into the program and build their professional capacity. So when I think of people here, I think very central to this are the teachers. I think the motivation of teachers is important, the agency of teachers, their sense of belonging, their sense of competence are all very important parts of this. And then obviously also their pedagogical content knowledge so that whatever, um, you know, program or priority that the department or the Ministry of Education has can actually be implemented on the ground. And I think when we're talking now about teachers that are already in the schools and that are already teaching, very often they are facing big challenges. You know, that it's not easy to be a teacher. There's, there's, there's a lot of challenges that they come across on a day-to-day -day basis, especially when teaching some or, or a, a large proportion of the children in your class are in some ways disadvantaged, have needs that you feel that in the current setup that you have as a teacher, you're not well enough equipped to support those learners. I think that can be very demotivating for teachers. And if then a program just comes as an add-on, you know, it's just, so, so how you go about capacitating teachers, I think is also a very important part of that. How are you going to ensure that those teachers get the support that they need to implement that policy? I think is very important. Have I got the answers? No. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's something that we can talk about together. I think you have the answer because that feeds into my response. Okay. If we have good, we have good training. If we have, yes, if we have good training and uh, teachers understand what they are supposed to do in terms of methodology that is pertinent to multilingual classes, 
then they can do what I have in my hand. Can you and please read card, it? Yeah. And my card says multilingual education specific instructional materials that build on the minority learners' language, knowledge, and experience and enable them to bridge mm -hmm. to one or more additional languages. So that bridge is what Fatima spoke about earlier in terms of our policy of our country as well as legislation that we are we have adopted additive multilingualism so a child will build up from the mother tongue and add on languages in opposition to the deficit model which Fatima also spoke about where the language that you are familiar with then sort of dies because of the dominance and the hegemony of English in the classroom. So I want to go back to the instructional materials. I think this is very important to support the teachers in the classroom in terms of having resources at hand. So if, if uh, there are enough resources in terms of teacher guides and learner books that can be used um, efficiently in the classroom without the teacher having to do too much of search for additional material and information it would support to cut down on planning and administra uh, administration also what i've found out is that the textbooks in south africa don't have a bias towards multilingualism they are written uh, for classes that are homogeneous mm right so one size fits all and then the teacher has an additional task and i'm not saying that the teacher cannot do this but i'm saying if the work was there in the textbook it would help to reduce the teacher's workload if it is well written it's well prepared the teacher could use the resources at hand effectively i also think that the point about incorporating or uh, being inclusive with regards to the ch uh, minor minority learners language knowledge and experience doesn't feature so much in the in the resource materials that are available already mm -hmm. in terms of the type of texts that appear in textbooks i'm very passionate about this i feel that we need to have for example stories or or texts that um, are elicited from different backgrounds. If it's only Eurocentric, then mm. that is what that child in the classroom is being exposed to all the time. That's why I made the point earlier on that then the child reflects on his or her culture and background and think, but what I'm doing is not good enough. So mm. I think that we can do a little more in terms of working with publishers and trying to get them on board to be more inclusive in the resources that they prepare because schools buy those textbooks and then if you invest in a textbook you, you pay quite a lot of money that book remains in the system for almost a decade mm -hmm. and then that is all that the teachers are doing if the school will not top up with a different version or another textbook i don't think there are many teachers who will generate their own teaching material from the word go i think they use the textbook as a point of departure 
I, I, I like to share something about my own experience. Yes, please. So, um, I learned Afrikaans in school. And um, we were forced to learn Afrikaans. Actually, I grew up to love it. I, I love the literature. I, I understand the language sometimes better than the English. Because what happened to Fatima in terms of the Isizulu started happening to me with English. I was an Afrikaans teacher for more than 22 years. And I taught English towards the latter part of my, uh, my career. But when I was trained by my mentor and coach, which we call the department heads now, one of the things that we used to do is look at a variety of textbooks, choose a theme. We still do language teaching according to themes in a two-week cycle. And then I would prepare something that we call strictir sinner, sliatl sinner, key sentences with good vocabulary. And in the first lesson, you would read those sliatl sinner, you would you would go over the vocabulary so that the children knew how to spell it, they knew how to say it, and they knew how to construct a sentence. Thereafter, they would use those sentences in their oral discussion. The grammar aspects, the language convention, was very similar uh, to the Seattle Sinner, the key sentences, because it repeated the words. And I think we know by now that one of the things that needs to happen is children need uh, to have exposure to vocabulary or, or, or teaching strategies. Actually, let me clarify, multilingual teaching strategies for about four to ten weeks before they become familiar. Even teachers need that kind of exposure, you know, um, where you, you do things in a repetitive type of a way. So we did that in terms of constructing our own little uh, workbooks for teaching grammar. And when it came to the writing then, children would use the vocabulary from those key sentences. For example, if I had 10 sentences, at least the child learned 10 words in Afrikaans and was able to use 10 words to construct a paragraph. That is something that we did years ago. I, I, I doubt it is happening now. Well, thanks for sharing. Welcome. Yeah, I chose the graded reading materials. Uh, and I think in some ways also it builds on, on what has been shared by, um, by Roche, where you talk about the value of having things in different languages. Uh, for me, that's important because it's um, not, not only appealing to the language component, but again, it is about the messages that are being sent uh, to the learner about um, his or her culture and background. <clears throat> so, mine, may I read this before I start rambling yes. on? <laughs> Graded reading materials in the learner's home language and additional languages that help them build competence and confidence in reading for enjoyment and learning. And I think that's the word, Hannah, that, yeah, I latch onto is that enjoyment. It's, it's about getting them to have a love for reading, which I think is something that we're struggling with in the South African context. I think by and large, we have a love for speaking. 
but when it comes to reading and writing, I think we, we, we really, you know, fall short. So it's about making learners really enjoy and, and seeing reading as a fun activity and use that then to move to the learning component. So the other thing that's appealing to me in this is what South Africa is already doing. And, and I think Roshi already spoke about the grading reading material for very, very long in the South African uh, education system. We did not have reading material in the African languages. And it's ridiculous because I'm not sure about the actual percentages, but if you look at almost 70% of probably the speaking in African language and we don't have books in these African languages. So what's happening in the South African education system now is a promotion of reading material in the, the, the heritage language. So it's it's good to read this. It, 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 it gives us a sense that we're moving in the right direction. We're catering for the diversity of the learners and I think learners can identify with the pictures, with the backgrounds, with the language that's in that graded material. And that in itself builds their sense of identity, their sense of confidence, their sense of feeling wanted and, and a whole range of yeah, self-esteem. Um, so it does more than just building that love for, for, for reading. It's about building the child and then moving to the, the, the components of fun and learning. Well, thank you. It makes me think about the first inspired conference symposium that I participated in. Um, there was a very intelligent professor from Australia talking. I don't Kathleen. remember her name. Yeah, Kathleen. Kathleen. Professor Kathleen. Kathleen Hugh, thank you. And she spoke about a good practice, I guess, of a teacher that used not the books in different languages, but she used the different languages that learners spoke in the classroom and the parents as a resource. Mm. So she talked about different concepts, for example, the concepts animals. They asked the children, like, in your language, what is, what is, this, what is mm. this called? And then... Uh, some of them knew and some of them didn't and then they would ask the parents and then at, at the end of the week I don't know they had a whole number of words yeah a whole mm. word cloud around this concept mm -hmm. and and I think it's about that that good practices um, about what you said like building the self-esteem like people are curious about my my home language but also what you said Hannah uh, and what all, all three of you have been saying, that multilingualism is a richness as well. And mm. that it's... I think she uses the term translanguaging. Mm. That is Can correct. Can go to say what's happening in our classrooms? There is a kind of a reluctance to allow um, an English teacher to use their home language to explain a concept. We go as far as speaking about code switching. So code switching is maybe just a word or a phrase that the teacher um, is so-called allowed to use in the classroom. 
but not to um, fall back on the home language and explain a concept like you do. Our research findings also say that as department officials, we are to blame for that thinking because we stop people from doing it. And I think it comes from the old thinking uh, about immersion. No, you, you, you must just allow a child to speak only in English, for example. Don't allow a child to speak another language. But I think it comes from a position of not understanding the richness that multilingualism brings to the classroom. We cannot cut the child out from the background. After school hours, where does the child go? The child goes home and we are saying during school hours, divorce yourself from your environment, immerse yourself in another environment. So maybe uh, we, we need a completely different mind shift uh, amongst the different uh, stakeholders in the education sector to say these are new ways of thinking about how to uh, teach inclusively. You know, use the translanguaging, but then the question will be asked, is the teacher able to switch into the child's mother tongue or home language to make the child understand? And if you've got a variety of different languages in the classroom, do we expect the teacher to have knowledge of all those languages to do the translanguaging? Uh, effectively. Just something to reflect upon. It sounds very interesting. Is it doable? I think that brings us to another idea and, and, and the need for another shift that it is only the teacher who should be doing that. Uh, it's about using your learners as resources for that as well. So how do you capacitate the teacher to be able to use the learners as a resource when the teacher himself or herself cannot speak the different language. So, so that's something. Yeah. And it's maybe, it brings me back to this issue of training of teachers and I'm again sort of stepping out of my thing here. But So in, for KZN and with the, 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 the reading for meaning, the, the strategy, um, what yeah, the reading strategy. So, so what plans are there to to capacitate teachers with pedagogical or you know like content knowledge or clear guidelines or clear you know um, techniques and approaches to use? Is anything being thus planned? Far, yes, uh, thank you, Hannah. That thus far. Uh, most of the work is being done through NGOs. Uh, they come on board to support the department in, in KwaZulu-Natal and they work with subject advisors designing strategies to improve reading methodologies in the classroom. At the moment, we are working with more than one, but one of the interventions is the, the program that I am going to talk about. That one has been adopted by the government as a flagship program in the entire country. So every province is actually using that intervention program to up the learner performance in reading through what they, what they would describe as um, effective teacher training. 
So it's grounded in training, for example, me as a provincial coordinator so that I can support the subject advisor who then supports the teacher in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And we've adopted that as the main program at the moment. It is definitely focused on uh, using strategies for children whose mother tongue is not English. It is not explicitly grounded in multilingual education, but there are many overlaps in what they are doing. So at the moment, that is where we are. And so it would be more of a cascade type of from um, province to district to teachers. Unfortunately, yes. Mm -hmm. And unfortunate because uh, I believe that once-off workshop is not good enough to support the teachers. Mm -hmm. I think that is where the program can be improved. Mm -hmm. um, it's okay to call a teacher and expose them to the methodology of teaching, reading for meaning. Uh, I like what they're doing about demonstration lessons because it's a big part of the strategy. After the teachers are capacitated, they, 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 you know, they demonstrate what they would do in the classroom and then critique it to see what are the gaps in their, in their knowledge. But it is strictly grounded in this program at the moment. So we have some issues around teacher autonomy. However, those matters are going to be addressed. Mm. But also, yeah. Rosh, I think the, the, the challenge of uh, the number of subject advisors in comparison to the number of teachers, that, that ratio of subject advisors to teachers. That is, that is correct. Yeah. That is what correct. What is the ratio? Well, it, it, it depends on different districts, but you could get in one district where there are like 400 schools, you could get three subject advisors, or you could get one. It's ridiculous. It's, it's, so if we're looking at, uh, like Rosh is saying, number of subject advisors per school, it's three still. 300 or 400. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at the number of learners, you're multiplying schools by number of classes, by number of learners. I don't even want to go down that road. It's so really, then, very high. Yeah. So, so then I wonder whether in such strategies the department could possibly, I don't know, benefit or piggy bank on other strategies or initiatives that are being taken, whether it's nationwide or in the province, that sort of build capacity for school-based teacher development so that like, you know, they can find support elsewhere than in a subject advisor who's so far removed maybe for, for some teachers. That's a very good question. Uh, in some districts, I must point out, in some districts, what, uh, what is happening is lead teachers are identified mm to then work with the subject advisors for a greater reach. Mm -hmm. And it's working well, particularly well in one district, one district, pardon me, I follow up with them because to my knowledge, they come closest to establishing what we talk about as a professional learning community. Mm -hmm. other, other districts mention that they have uh, professional learning communities, but they are 
um, guided and they are sort of managed and controlled by the subject advisor. Mm. So I don't count that as a professional learning community. But in this particular district that I'm mentioning to you, the subject advisors have, have relinquished the control. They have capacitated the lead teachers and the lead teachers can work without the presence of the subject advisors. So I think in a district like that, it will work pretty well. Mm. I'm hoping in future more districts will do this. We, we have plans at our subject meeting to allow input from this particular district where they are going to share their best practice with other districts and hopefully they will uh, adopt the methods and strategies that's, that they are being used in the one district. Can I just check with you, Rosh? If the document talks to PLCs, are you talking about the intervention? Yeah, unfortunately not. Okay. So I think that would be a useful strategy, strategy like I think you were alluding to. Um, and then different provinces are doing different things. Like I know in one province where they adopted the program. For every single first additional school in the province, they have a smaller number of children. Mm -hmm. But in our province, we have 20 subject advisors uh, last in the intermediate phase, that's grade 4 to grade 6. I'm just using myself as an example. So advisors that I worked with last year, each of the 20 advisors trained 38 teachers only. This year, they are training 40 teachers. And hopefully, as we go on, they will train another cohort. But I can hear what you are saying, mm -hmm. is that our reach is too small. When will every teacher benefit from the work that is being done? In addition to if it's a once-off yeah. reaching out, mm -hmm. we also know that, that that's, that's often not enough for a teacher to actually implement it in the class even though the demonstration lessons and those things will certainly help, there might be teachers out there who need Definitely. further support. Hey? So Definitely, I agree. And uh, I can share with you the results from last year. There was about a 12% increase in knowledge amongst teachers and advisors. Okay. <laughs> there, there is a newer report that uh, has not been made public as yet, but I'm hoping by the time I get to uh, Belgium, I will have those updated uh, reports. That be, it would and be that's nice. knowledge on? Knowledge on teaching methodologies and strategies. Okay. And that's what this program is focused okay. on. So we're not looking at, as you were talking about earlier, learner performance and reading. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think th there's a mechanism for to test learner performance at the moment. What what could be done, and I haven't I haven't heard that this is being done, is we have a system of recording learner performance called SA SAMS. It is, it, 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 it is a system, an operational mechanism. Uh, we could track that with the learners uh, of the teachers that are on the program from last year to this year. But, yes, but also within a year. Because what is happening, the teachers are working on the program for a year. And in the new year, it's a new cohort of teachers.
and a new cohort of learners as well. But that's very interesting mm. because that will be the essence of it to show that there is an improvement. However, we are going to be writing the next PEARLS assessment pretty soon. Okay, PEARLS, Pearls is, the, is that's the research that Fatima was referring to in one of your earlier questions where we could see that South Africa has a lot of challenges when it comes to reading for meaning in grade four. So yeah, it's called the PEARLS. It's P-I-R-L-S. But for me, I'm just thinking in the South African context, George, the, the EGRA has been used. And it would have been good if, if we did some kind of baseline using the EGRA and then using it again after the year with that number of entities. So we were able to get that kind of statistics. Because it's all well and good to speak about uh, teacher knowledge or subject advisor knowledge improving. Yeah, what about the impact of that? I think one of the tests that teachers took showed that their own knowledge was not good enough to make a difference. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, it's great that there's that improvement. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about that, but I think we need to go beyond that. Agree. So I think what we're saying is that whilst there are a number of initiatives um, in, you know, with having implicitly behind um, the whole the reading for, 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 for meaning um, initiative and, and, the and making it a national priority, there are challenges and we can't run away from that uh, in the South African context. There is a lot of work still to do. Yeah. I think that's a good conclusion, Fatima. Thank you. And I look forward to you sharing the good practices to uh, to get there, because there's also a lot of good stuff happening. And I think the three of you know a lot of good things happening as well. You're pointing. No, I'm just remarking. I can't believe an hour is up already. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it goes fast like that. So before we close, I want to play a little game, just a very tiny one. It's a challenge, actually. Oh, dear. Yeah. We have been talking about the, the great diversity in South Africa and the multilingual contexts. So we have 12 official languages and many more unofficial mm -hmm. languages here. I'm wondering if... When the three of you team up, could you name the 12 languages? I think so. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give you a chance. We'll add to um, what you say. We can even make it a game. You can... Uh, I think Fatima is very confident, so she can start by naming one. I will take off. And then Rosh continues and Hanno. Okay. And then whoever whoever uh, fails to name one when it's your turn, you uh, quit the game. And then at the end we have no. a winner. I was going to leave the easy, easy ones. For, you can still for, do for, that. For, 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 for. Oh, you can still. Is <laughs> Zulu? <laughs> that is an official one. Isikosa. Yes. English. <laughs> 
Good luck, Daddy. Okay. Kago Afrikaans. Sitswana. I'll say in the village. You didn't. Okay. So I will explain what happened here. <laughs> Hannah has cheated and she opened her Wikipedia page, and now the whole world knows it, about it. Ah, oh, so disqualified. Yeah, she's disqualified. Oh, and there was another one I knew. I knew I didn't have to cheat. Sign language. Okay, so you're you disqualified. <laughs> so you've taken Indivella that she said. You said Indivella. Have you ticked it off? No, but now I did. Yeah. Yes. Siswati. We're looking for three more. Did she say Sitsonga? Yeah, Sitsonga. Is that one of them? Uh, that's that wasn't said yet. Siswana. I will say the one yes, you already yes, said. Yes. I'm sorry for the pronunciation already. It's Sipedi, Sitswana, Siswata, Sitsonga, Afrikaans, English. Isindebele, Isi Hausa, Isi Zulu, and South African Sign Language. Chibenda? Yes. One more. Mm-hmm. You were very confident at the beginning. I no, I know them. I, I think if mm-hmm. I had them visually, I, I, I would, it would have helped to me. But let me not make excuses. Um, I'm not naming the last one. Nguni. No, mm. not an official one, I guess. Hannah, stop cheating. I'm not cheating. <laughs> you are. <laughs> I'm Sutu. You said Sutu. Did you? Sutu. No, Sutu. Okay. Okay. It's one of the easier ones, yes. actually. Yeah, it's too obvious, mm. probably. Mm-hmm. Okay, so with a little help from Hannah and Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Just to establish some context on how diverse, uh, because these are the official ones, right? Yes. It's not even the unofficial, the unofficial yes. ones, which would be more than so thirty. Can I um, challenge Hannah to give us the percentages for all those languages? That's how intellectual the highest, in fact, is Isizulu. Yes. Yeah, with 22.7%. And then would it be cost? Uh, then I think it's upper Afrikaans. Ah, and then mm, it's English. And then English. Good, wow. Roche. Very good. Especially thank you to Roche for uh, coming all the way over here. But a big thank you to all three for making time in your busy schedules. It wasn't easy to get the three of you at the same time around my table, but we did it and I'm very proud and I'm very happy with what came out of it. If you have been listening to this podcast and you are curious for more, you can register online for the Learning Week about Multilingualism. It takes place in November, so if we say March somewhere during the podcast, don't believe us. Um, originally, it was scheduled in March, but we had to postpone to November because of the COVID-19 outbreak. We will leave the link in the description. So thank you very much for listening and we hope to see you in November.